made this. Hello out there in Cyberland. I am Matthew Galt, and we have a special edition of Cyber coming to you live on Twitch today. We've got a real murderer's row of right to repair experts with us. First of all, we've got Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler over there. Uh, We've got Kyle Weens, CEO of iFixit. We've got Nathan Proctor, USPIRG's head of their Right to Repair campaign. And we've got Gay Gordon Byrne, who is the uh, head of Repair.org. I'm sorry, Gay, is that correct? Are you the head of Repair.org? Sure. I'm really the executive director, but this all call me late for dinner. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, and we we are all everyone carved a little bit of time out of their busy busy schedules today because there is some big news out of Apple. Jason, why don't you tell us what's going on? Yeah, we've got the council here. So Apple announced today that at long last and seemingly under much duress from Kyle and Nathan and Gay and us and a lot of people, uh, it's going to start selling parts, tools, and repair manuals for the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13. Uh, It's going to give these direct to consumers, which is something that we have wanted for a really long time. It's not a right to repair law, but it is a big step in the right direction, I believe. Kyle, are we happy about this or are we not happy about this? Happy about this. This This is a really positive, constructive step in the right direction. Um. So where should we even start? I mean, Apple has spent the last seven, eight, nine, ten years saying that allowing people to replace batteries on their iPhones or replace uh, screens on their iPhones would lead to security problems, hacking issues, privacy problems, potential explosions uh, from people who are breaking batteries and stuff like that. Like, how did we get here? This is, this is a question to, to all. I, I, I mean, we've been following it, but like, like, I think everyone's, I think everyone's a little, I mean, I am, I was a little stunned when I saw this this morning. I kind of had no idea it was coming. Um, how did we get to a place where it feels like rapidly in the last year, the tune has completely changed on this issue. Kyle, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, this has been, I mean, increasing pressure from all sides. Uh, it's not just that 27 U.S. states are working on this. You also have the Biden administration adding pressure. You've got the FTC. In Australia, their equivalent to the FTC, the Productivity Commission, is working on a landmark report on this. Canada has debated this uh, at the parliament floor. Uh, you've got the European Commission has said that part of their circular economy uh, plan is includes right to repair. Uh, so if you're if you're in government relations at a multinational company, you start to look at where the wind is blowing and say, well, can we get out in front of this a little bit? Um, well, Gay, that, one thing that you've said over and over again is Apple and electronics manufacturers in general don't want to have to deal with 30 different laws in 30 different states, let alone five different countries. And so... Um, do you think that this is a step 
for Apple to preemptively say, Hey, we've given, we've given you what you want. We don't need a law. Not, not to, not to say like, Hey, this is a PR move and nothing else or a move to, um, prevent a law from being passed. Although we can and should talk about that, but like, is, is this what we want? And I don't know, like it, what, what more should Apple do? Um, or is this just like great news and sort of that's, that's what we have. Like gay, when, when you're pushing for legislation, I mean, we hear over and over again, it's like, how are we going to comply with all of these different laws in different States? Like what do manufacturers say to, Hey, we're fighting this law in this state and a, a slightly different law in another state. Like what, what is sort of the case for right to repair legislation being universal? Um, well, we can't make states do exactly the same thing. Uh, but in the auto industry, when right to repair was first passed in 2012, the auto industry themselves agreed among themselves um, to standardize their policies based on the Massachusetts law. And that opportunity exists for all the OEMs today, and it will probably exist. And we expect something like that will happen uh, because a patchwork would, in fact, be very challenging. The other alternative is to wait for a bunch of states to pass roughly similar laws, and then the federal government can probably pass a bill that makes it a national standard. But I think states are going to go first, and it's going to be very hard for OEMs to comply in more than one state with the, with variations. Right. The thing that when when I saw this happen, it reminded me a lot of what John Deere and the tractor manufacturers did a year and a half ago, two years ago. Although Apple is doing it much quicker, where they basically said, "Okay, you're pushing for right to repair. You want a right to repair law." Uh, you want access to parts and diagnostic equipment and that sort of thing. Well, we're just going to give it to you. And now we don't need a law. Um, although the tractor manufacturers said this, I believe in 2018, and then said that they're going to roll it out at the beginning of 2021. Nathan, uh, USPIRG, you basically, and, and your colleagues did a big report about what actually happened here. Can you tell us sort of what did John Deere do? And what should we be on the lookout for here where you have a company saying, okay, we're going to give you what you want, but then what you end up getting is not quite what was asked for, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, Kevin O'Reilly, by the way, did a lot of that work. Um, but so if you look at what the process is for a lot of these campaigns, and I actually predicted this actually in a column I wrote for Wired, like right after the the John Deere's half solution came out was that, you know, they, the opposition, once they try to ignore you and then they try to discredit you, and then they basically try to co-opt you and give you just enough to get you to stop asking. And what happened with tractors is they actually, John Deere actually does provide a whole new set of service materials that they were not providing before. Um, and there's no law that forces them to do this. They just wanted to tr try to undercut a law. But at the same time, they tried to keep the monopolization of the hardware intact. So there's certain things that they've withheld from their um, 
from their offering, their, their new products that they're allowing you to buy. So you can go to John Deere, you can spend $10,000 and get a software tool that allows you to do some of the repairs, and then you'll run into a point where you actually can't do the repair anymore, and you then need to call on the dealer, even after you've had to spend $10,000 and you're spending 150 bucks a month for a subscription to the repair tool, which is incomplete. And so farmers are just not having it, right? So it's like the 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 trend was maybe we can just give them this much and then they'll walk away. And then in the case of farm equipment, farmers are like, no, we still can't finish the repairs that we need. So we're going to keep pushing and you haven't given us enough and we're going to keep pressing for, for, for laws. And that's what's going on in the farm space. That may be what happens to Apple. Some people may, might, once this program debuts, we might spend some time looking at it and think, well, to actually work, we're going to need better pricing on parts, or we're going to need the ability to pair screens, not just the, the one screen that you want us to do, but any screen that we find. And, you know, it, it, Apple's, uh, you know, half measure will test the resolve of the advocates and the coalition on right to repair. Will they keep pressing, or will they everyone just kind of lose interest and walk away? And my sense is... They're, they've underestimated our resolve on this issue time and time again, and that's why we've got the upper hand right now when you look at what's going on with Right to Repair. Kyle, what's the deal with the screens? Because I fixed it did a great piece on the screens. This was a big deal two weeks ago, and now Apple says that they're not going to have screen replacements break iPhones. But now they're saying, okay, we'll sell you screens, but... Right. What do we need to be on, on the lookout for there? Because it might just yeah, be so, that. Sure. Yeah. I've been kind of chicken little with, uh, with Apple repair for a while because the moment that they have cryptographic pairing between two parts, uh, then they get to decide who can do repairs and who can't. And that's what we saw with the iPhone 13. We took two brand new iPhone 13s on launch day. We swapped the screens and the face ID completely stopped working, which is a like major flagship feature. People probably wouldn't want an iPhone without face ID. Uh, and it turns out there's a chip on the screen, and the chip that's on the screen was paired to the phone. And so the clever repair shops figure out, oh, if we take the chip off and put it on the new screen, uh, we can make Face ID work. Uh, but that's not a viable uh, path for um, mainstream repair. Taking that chip off is very, very hard. Um, so we released that and said, you know, this, this change could be the death of the independent repair industry. Um, and uh, I think four days later, Apple caved and said, okay, we'll release a software update to enable that screen swapping to work. Uh, and w- what we have heard is that the iOS 15.2 beta does indeed uh, re-allow um, these kind of swaps. Right. And then, so I guess what we need to be on the lookout for is a future in which Apple says, okay, well, we're selling you the screen you can do yeah. Repair, well, so that's what we're actually really with- concerned about. The way that the IRP system works is the chip that's on the phone. Like when you buy a, a replacement part from Apple, um, they're kind of provisioning that part for you, and you can install it on your serial number. And you can't take an aftermarket part and 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 make it work. They haven't said that the software that they're releasing works with aftermarket uh, parts at all. And so that's really the concern here is that. They'll allow repair in their lockdown ecosystem, but they won't allow repair outside of that ecosystem. Yeah, um, and so they, sorry, let's zoom out real quick. 
Uh, I just want to like hit the announcement and just kind of be very specific about what they said uh, this morning, right? This is self-service repair. They're essentially opening, they're going to be opening up a store uh, where you can get repair manuals and repair documentation. They're going to be offering, they say the new store will offer more than 200 individual parts and tools, enabling customers to complete the most common repairs on an iPhone, iPhone 12 and an iPhone 13. Right. Uh, and they do say soon to be followed by Mac computers featuring M1 chips, self-service repair, blah, 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 more to come. Um, it sounds good, but we don't have a lot of concrete details about it, what, what those 200 parts are, you know, what the repairs will, you know, that are going to be allowed, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there's still a lot of caveats and, and uh, traps that we could be falling into. We're excited. This is good news, but we should proceed with caution. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, all we have uh, is a promise of a program that'll be released that's modeled on a program that we don't particularly like. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're we're going to have to see. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding. The, the the thing that they've said that I'm the most excited about is that the service manuals are going to be public. Um, this is the first time that Apple really is committed to doing that. Um, the lack of available information just on how to open these things, the secrecy around that, I think has been a large part of kind of the insidious, uh, you know, culture that has arisen around consumer electronics. It really started with the iPod being the first mainstream consumer electronics device that had a battery that was integrated. There was no information on how to pry it out. So having Apple post information on how to access and swap the iPhone's battery uh, is a step in the direction of saying, oh, yeah, actually, we want the phone to last longer than its first battery. It's not just a step in the direction. It's a step in the direction that, like, Apple had basically indicated that they had no intention of ever making because it, the sky would fall if consumers were allowed to do this stuff. I mean, as you know, you reported on just the the the... the terrifying things, the claims that they've made about the consequences of doing what they've now just done. Yeah, um, I want to run through some of the the hits, play the hits here. <laughs> so I've been reporting on Apple repair quite a lot, repair more broadly, but Apple we've written about the most because Apple has been one of the mm, fiercest opponents of independent repair and DIY repair, as well as the fact that simply like it's a huge part of the independent repair business it's like many repair businesses um make most of their money on like iphone screen swaps um wrote a big story like years ago went to a, a conference that kyle was at and sort of wrote about i fix it and the the main thing at first was the pencil lobe screw which is just a screw on the bottom of the iphone now it's used like on many of apple's products like it's on the macbook too it's and it's like they used to have Phillips screws. Now they have pentalobe screws, which is a proprietary screw that Apple didn't really invent, I believe, but very much popularized. And it's like a star shape. So if you look at the bottom of an iPhone, you'll see that it has a star shape. That is a hardware design decision that makes it harder to open the phone and thus harder to repair it Um not the end of the world because you can buy a pencil lobe screwdriver and iFixit sells those. Um, lots of other places sell them too. Um, but then we get into some of the sort of the legislative and PR things that Apple has done to prevent repair. Um, error 63, was it? Have I? 53. Well, 53, 53. 
Gay, I know you, you talked a lot about Era 53. What, what was Era 53? Oh, boy. Um, we're going back in almost ancient history here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll run through it quickly, but yeah. it's, it's, it's an important one, I think. Uh, basically, um, Apple sent out an update, um, a push update, that if you had had your screen replaced by an independent, I think it was a screen, right, Kyle? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, was um, it was a screen that it would brick your phone. Wasn't a very consumer friendly idea. Um, Apple tried to uh, dance around it, saying it was for the benefit of your security. Nobody bought it. Um, it. They did manage to come up with a fix, a software fix, and kind of backtrack. But it took them a good long time to backtrack on that. And it had been our opinion that if they had hung in there and refused to fix that problem, another 30 days, we probably would have had multiple bills already passed. It was very, very upsetting to legislators. So yeah, that's only one of many. Yeah, super destructive. And really, um, to me, that was like a signal like, hey, we control this device. Like we, we can do this and we can undo it. And like, you know, that's sort of a shot across the bow in terms of like, do you actually own the device? Because Apple can brick it at any time if you repair it in a way that they don't like. I think then when you start talking about legislative things, the, the one that really stands out to me was the Nebraska bill from a few years ago. Um, and to be clear, like the, the bills that you have been pushing for would require electronics manufacturers, sometimes agriculture manufacturers, sometimes both to sell parts, tools, open up, um, open up like repair manuals, like the same repair manuals that their techs have, the public general public would have to have. And then some of the bills have measures that would prevent artificial software locks for, that prevent repairs from being implemented, which is something that we see across all sectors. But in Nebraska, Apple's lobbyists were telling lawmakers there that if they passed this bill, Nebraska would become, I believe the quote was a Mecca for hackers and bad actors. Um, and that bill was killed that year. Uh, basically, they fear uncertainty and doubted um, everyone and, and in that state, and they got the bill killed. Um, they did, then did some sort of PR pushes around that. Like Apple didn't really talk about repair much at all, um, but eventually did some conference type things where they had, you know, their high up executives saying like, if people are repairing their own things, they can hurt themselves. They can cut off their fingers, things of this nature. So there was both the PR push, the legislative push, the sort of software push. And then I think maybe most importantly is the creeping sense that no one can repair things um, except for Apple or Apple will get mad at you, which we know that the, many independent repair shops can repair things, but it's like, you take in your iPhone to an Apple store and they are like this. They either say this is unfixable. We need to send it somewhere. You need to buy a new one. No one can fix it. And you say, hey, I'm going to take it to an independent repair shop. And they're like, that'll avoid the warranty. And then you're like, yeah, but the thing's broken already. And it's like it feels like you're being gaslit, like at these at the Apple store about what is possible in, in repair. And I think that that in my mind, like that is one of the most insidious things that Apple has done because uh, it's hard to kind of nail that down. It's like when an Apple lobbyist is saying something at a hearing or an Apple trade group is saying something at a hearing, you can attribute that to Apple 
when a friendly worker at an app, Apple store just kind of tells you like, Oh yeah, you kind of like voided your warranty because you opened this. Like we can't work on it. Like there's kind of plausible deniability about what the actual policy is there, but that's, that's a long ramble and rant about basically like Apple has said as Nathan and Kyle and, and gay have already said, it's like they were saying that this was impossible and now they just went and did it. Not, not um, only impossible, but dangerous. Right. I want to, I, I've pulled some of the quotes here uh, while, while you were talking. I just want to read them. Um, the previous story in Nebraska, we talked to uh, a senator out there, uh, state senator. Apple said that we would be the only state that would pass this and that we would become the mecca for bad actors. They said that doing this would make it very easy for hackers to relocate to Nebraska. Um, another one that was really great uh, is in congressional testimony. Um, repairs that do not properly replace screws or cowlings might leave behind loose parts that could damage a component such as the battery causing overheating or resulting in injury. Apple said, uh, for these reasons, we believe it is important for repair shops to receive proper training when obtaining access to spare parts and repair manuals. And while I agree that repair shops should get proper training, well, who's, where's the onus, right? Like Apple's the one that controls that information, Right. So if, if anyone's putting anybody Apple in Apple and Kyle, <laughs> right? Apple and Kyle's community. Yeah. It's, it's totally ridiculous thing to say, listen, you need to become certified before you get to read the manual. Cause it's like, how do you learn how to fix something if you can't look at the manual? Cause it's, you know, I mean, it, but it, this is, this is the, uh, you know, catch 22 that they created and eventually it started to fall apart. I think just because of, how long and how many people got involved in, in right to repair and, and how clearly I think, I think I fix it has laid out exactly how their, their techniques, you know, restrict repair. One of the arguments that we've heard in testimony from um, Apple is, is the safety and security argument. And Apple has kind of backed off directly being involved in, in legislative advocacy because every time they say something dumb, we're able to amplify it and turn it against them. So now they just send their lobbyists in and the lobbyists, um, they'll say absolutely anything. And the safety and security argument keeps coming back. So the best thing about the announcement to me is that they've now said, Oh, never mind. (laughs) But we didn't mean those arguments before. And it's like, okay, well, you argued pretty hard with the Federal Trade Commission, and you've argued pretty hard in 27 states, and now it's okay. Um, I love that. I think that's a huge step forward. It is for at least for the right to repair movement, because we're not just worried about Apple. Um, right. Apple is the poster child of bad behavior, but they're not the only bad actor. So we need yeah. to make sure that this gets, you know, pushed forward. I don't know if they are the poster child. Like it's just more people have that experience personally, like the stuff that John Deere is doing, I think is worse. Um, you know, Vin burning all these different parts in the tractor. I just think that that's insane. Uh, there was a story in Axios about, uh, um, I forget the name. It's like, uh, something surgical, a surgical robotics company. And they literally turned off a piece of equipment mid surgery because they're having a dispute over the service contract. So, you know, the, but it all goes to show you that, yes, while Apple may not be the worst, like 
there's real consequences to people when manufacturers play these games around who who can manage the equipment, what you're allowed to do with stuff that you own, including like interrupting a surgery and doctors having to whip out the scalpel and switch from a laparoscopic procedure to, to, to a more direct surgery because the manufacturer of the surgical robotic equipment got mad at them for hiring an independent servicer to maintain the equipment. Nathan, can you explain VIN burning? Oh yeah, I mean that the idea that you can um, serialize or put a specific, uh, unique identifying number in a part, and 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 so that no other part will work unless it contains that serial number, like the VIN number in your car, right? So if you have uh, basically firmware um, which is encoded into the the parts that you buy. And they will not work. They, the, the computer will not recognize them as part of the system unless they contain that code. That means that the only possible way to ins- properly install parts uh, is to have access to, um, you know, that that the ability to code them in that very specific way. Um, and it's it's a silly way. It, 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 there's very little benefit to doing that except restricting who can fix it. And this is something that is now becoming ubiquitous in our technology. And there's no reason to do it except for to rent seek from customers. And it's really upsetting that we've tolerated this in society. It should just be illegal. It's just stupid. It it, it only results in bad things for us. Um, and and you know, Apple does it with some of their parts. John Deere does it with some of their parts. People just need to knock that off. Appliance companies are really famous for this i feel yeah i mean the the idea that i mean like ge with their like water filters right like literally just a hunk of carbon and they need a serial number on it uh i mean that's just silly we're going to see that that this is the problem with software is it becomes possible to do anything and so you get the business model dictating the use of the product uh, and we need to we need to like take a firm line on ownership. You sold it to me. Uh, it's mine now. I can do what I want. If you wanted to control what I could do with it, you shouldn't have sold it to me in the first place. You should have rented it to me. Right, Kyle. Uh, I want to grill you for a second. Um, we met each other six or seven years ago, probably at a conference, uh, right? A repair conference, and I was writing a big feature about I fix it. You were telling me the origin story, and for anyone who doesn't know, I think probably most people watching this will know what iFixit is, but Kyle has uh, built a business and community um, that teaches people how to repair things, everything, really. Um, sells parts, uh, basically has a, a mix of, of staff-built guides as well as community-built guides that teaches people how to build anything. Apple is now saying that they are going to put out their own guides and sell their own tools and when we first met each other, I was like, are you worried about putting yourself out of business by lobbying for a law that would basically require Apple to release the same things that, that you do? And you said, you know, that's uh, that's my dream. Like, I want that to happen. Um, are you quaking in your boots today about this decision? Is I fix it going out of business? Um, what uh, what's, thought- your, what's your reaction here? Someone said on Mac Rumors, they said, I fix it, got Sherlocked. Uh, so here we are. <laughs> uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you, 
on, on, on one level, I mean, I hope so. I hope that they can provide enough of an ecosystem that this is viable. I mean, we've, I, I fix it provides that support ecosystem uh, to enable repair parts, information tools in a compelling, you know, modern integrated format. Can a manufacturer like Apple step up and provide an equivalent ecosystem? I would sure hope so. Uh, we haven't seen it happen. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how good a job they do with it. Um, the IRP has not gotten uh, very good reviews from the folks and the folks outside. It, the, the pricing is very high. The lockdown of software requirements is, is kind of hostile. Um, the documentation has been okay. IRP is um, independent repair program for anyone. Who yeah, this know. is Apple's independent, and and this is the, the way that they're building this, and it's exactly how I would do it if I were them. They they built a prototype of what it would be, and then they rolled it out to independents, and now they're taking the independent program and they're opening up to consumers, and that's a good way to incrementally prove their supply chain and their program. So it's a very smart uh, approach from Apple's perspective. Um, uh, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, I sell iPhone screens. Apple is competing with me on iPhone screens now. Um, and, you know, to some extent, that's the competition we've been asking for, right? We've been saying, please compete with us. So I'm not really concerned about about uh, competing with them. I think that we've got a great product and we're going to have a, a better value and a better DIY consumer parts experience. Um, uh, but we will find out. Uh, and if Apple ends up being more competitive, um, uh, you know, maybe that's okay. Kyle, what's the well, difference? You sell stuff for for all manufacturers, so it's obviously just like we one do. Yeah, I mean, Apple is is a is a small portion of our business now. It used to be a hundred percent of our business was was selling Apple parts, and now it's it's uh, dramatically less than that. What's the difference between the IRPs and the Apple authorized service providers, the AASPs? Yeah, the difference is warranty. So if you want to be able to do in-warranty work, you need a contract with the manufacturer because the manufacturer is going to reimburse you for work. You're not going to do work for free, and if it's not going to cost the consumer, the manufacturer has to pay for it. So the Apple authorized service provider, these are people that have a contract with Apple, just like your Ford dealership, and you can take it into them, and they get paid by Apple for their labor doing work on your device. Where the independent service program are folks uh, where they, they have... Um, a much more lightweight agreement with Apple allowing them to buy parts. But they're doing repairs outside of warranty. Not not repairs that void the warranty, by the way. Um, And that's (laughs) something Apple has smart lawyers. I think they're being very savvy on this. Like They're not saying that if you do your own consumer repairs, it'll void the warranty uh, because they legally cannot say that. Um, They'll say if you do a repair and you damage it in the process, that voids the warranty, and that's correct and fair. Right. Kyle, what do we know about Apple's tools? Um, yeah, you know, so unless I mean, you do, work do for Apple, you tools. don't know. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the the hardware tools because I think I, I mean that's I make hardware tools, right? So it, it it tends to be the case that when manufacturers are working on phones, they tend to take the same kind of approach that they do for their manufacturing fixtures. So you get these like big aluminum blocks, custom made things, and it's got like a big hinge and suction cups, and the tool weighs like ten pounds. Uh, and and that works fine if you've got 500 Apple stores, you need to make 500 tools and you distribute them around the world. It doesn't work if you need to send a tool out with every with every um, uh, part that you sell. And uh, we have not seen Apple really get, uh, as part of IRP, they really haven't made tools affordable. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see when their service manual comes out, it's going to have the requirements of here's all the tools that you need in order to follow our instructions. Um and and that's not how we do. I fix it instructions. When I fix it, we we look at the product and then we figure out what is the like 
cheapest set of tools that we can come up with, the simplest approach that will make it easy for people to work on things. Where Apple's approach has been like we're going to make it like the absolute perfect way to do things. Uh, and, and we don't care if you have to spend $1,000 on tools to make that happen. Right, this um, is- so it will be interesting to see if they adapt their tool approach to be more consumer friendly. If they just say, oh, well, you have to have the same tools. The yeah, you want to fix your too. screen by this $1,000 block of yeah. metal. Yeah, this is yeah. the this is the same company that brought us the nineteen dollar polishing cloth, right? Yeah. The <laughs> how expensive were those wheels? As some absolutely astronomical amount, uh, I can't quite recall. It was like four hundred bucks. I I wonder if, given the success of that polishing cloth, if somebody hasn't been like, hey, we should put an RFID in that cloth, and we should <laughs> we should block people from polishing with other cloths. The wheels are seven hundred dollars, actually, not four hundred. The Apple Mac yeah, Pro wheels—that's like the thousand dollar Vesa mount or whatever, however much it costs. But that monitor mount that yep. is absurd. Um, Gay, you've kind of been leading the legislative fight uh, for a right to repair law for five years, maybe longer than that. But I default to round numbers—five to ten years. Um, there's been a ton of progress, like 26 states this year or something like that. How many states this year were you, were you in? 27. 27 states. Yeah, and no. some Indian provinces and uh, four bills kicking around in the Congress. We, we've been very busy. And it's not just me. I mean, Nathan and of his course. team have been enormously um, busy with us because um, he's got people that do state legislation. And they've been really good about helping. So, um, yeah, and it's 2013 because we filed our first bill in uh, 2014. So it feels like a very long time. Yeah, yeah. My question is basically, like, how does this news change what you're trying to do? Or how does it change your messaging? Or does it not at all? Oh, it, it, it actually, I think it's very encouraging because Apple is, in fact, only one vendor. Uh, we've made it very clear to all of our legislative sponsors that this is not only about Apple. Um, it's every vendor that produces something with a chip. And so there's there's plenty of need for, let's say Apple really does do what they say they're going to do. Everybody else needs to do the same thing too, because consumers really don't have any assurance right now that when they go to the store and they buy something, that they're going to have any ability to fix it, either themselves or through whoever they choose to hire to help them. So I think it's very validating. Um, it's also it, the people that have been backing this legislation have really put a lot of their own their own hearts into this. And I think they'll be really excited to see if they made a difference already, even though maybe the bills haven't passed. I think it's going to be very positive. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can Apple be the good guy here in the sense of 
can you now go to Samsung and LG and all these other companies and say, Apple did it, why can't you? And can lawmakers do that as well? Oh, lawmakers probably can. I don't think Samsung wants to hear from me. Um, I think <laughs> I think they can read the newspaper just as well as, or read the news or read the podcast, whatever, just as well as anybody else. And we've had this theory for a while, and it seems to be proving true, that once one of the major manufacturers tips, like you start a chain of dominoes and the dominoes start to fall, um, Apple's not the first chip to fall. Uh, Microsoft kind of started leaning a couple of weeks ago, and we've seen some other manufacturers uh, like Motorola, Kyle, you know, they're just not a major player in the space, but they've made parts available for quite some time now. So um, I think the domino effect is really what's going to carry this forward, that we're going to see other manufacturers that maybe were thinking they could get away with this as long as Apple did. Um, they're going to say, hey, I got, I got no reason to fight this. I'm going to stop fighting. We, we hope. Matt, can you tell us what uh, Microsoft did? Because that that was big news a couple weeks ago. Uh, if you give me a second to pull up the story, I can't do it off the top of my head. I can tell you what Microsoft did. All right. Yeah. <laughs> What's up? Yeah. So, you know, Microsoft, uh, uh, we've been very critical of Microsoft's designs for a number of years. Uh, they're, they've been like glued together. Uh, you know, tablets that are just very hard to open. They they sold the first laptop on the market with a battery that it was uh, basically completely impossible to replace. Um, and uh, a couple years ago, Microsoft started changing their tune, and they started incrementally working on uh, uh, the product we were seeing. We were taking apart where it got more repairable. They uh, got rid of the glued-together laptop design and replaced it with a magnet design. Panos Panay took apart the laptop on, on stage when he announced it and said, look, it's repairable now. Uh, and um, they, uh, there was a shareholder initiative by a, a group called As You Sew asking Microsoft to engage more in the repair community. Uh, and normally these shareholder initiatives, you know, you go and you ask Exxon, please, will you be climate neutral? And Exxon laughs at you and tells their, uh, their shareholders to vote no, and that's the end of it. Well, in this case, Microsoft actually responded to As You So and said, you know what, you're right, we'd like to get better on repair. Uh, and they signed a uh, agreement with As You So to, by the end of next year, I think, you know, roll out uh, repair parts across their product lines. Um, so very similar to what to what Apple is doing here. Um, they haven't uh, uh, anyway. So w- w- it's going to be very interesting to see um, that happen. We basically have commitments from both Microsoft and Apple saying they want to get better, uh, but neither of them have done it yet. Yeah, Microsoft's exact words here are: uh, they're going to quote complete a third party study evaluating the environmental and social impacts associated with increasing consumer access to repair, and determine new mechanisms to increase access to repair, including. For Surface devices and Xbox consoles, expand the availability of certain parts and repair documentation beyond Microsoft's authorized service provider network and initiate new mechanisms to enable and facilitate local repair options for consumers. It's not quite as uh, broad sweeping as what Apple just said, but a significant step in the right direction. Yeah, they also they committed to doing like a study and that that's stu- like anytime I see that I'm a little skeptical. I'm like, okay, well, what is your study going to find and how who's going to do it and what's the action going to come out of that? But that was a that was a big deal and it's like it's so different from what we've heard over the last few years where 
the companies didn't want to budge on this at all. Do y'all think the uh, the executive order and the FTC stuff that also happened this year kind of moved this needle at all? Gay, you're nodding. Oh, yeah. That FTC study was really, really impactful. Um, because they went into the description of what the manufacturers were saying, and they evaluated the evidence that manufacturers had been asked to provide, and that's where they didn't come up with anything. Uh, the scant evidence was literally one cell phone. So the best the big tech has been able to do is prove that there was a single cell phone fire in 2011 in Australia as evidence that consumers were going to get hurt. Uh, and that was incredibly powerful. Um, I think it's the reason that New York State was able to get their bill passed through the state Senate. Uh, I think absent that report, it might have been a much bigger fight. Um, similarly, in Massachusetts, it's been very impactful. Um, and it has really reassured legislators they're on the right track. Plus, they also said they would help state legislators um, work on bills. And they've been doing that. We've had a bunch of situations where legislators have been on the phone with the FTC. Um, so it's been very, very powerful. I think the executive order was more of a rubber stamp for what the FTC had already had already initiated. It didn't hurt. Uh, but I think the, the FTC report by itself did a huge, uh, just a huge lift for us. What, uh, what else should we talk about? How's everyone doing? I haven't, I haven't seen, I've met all of you except Nathan. I haven't seen any of you in years because of the pandemic. How's everyone doing? I say I have to repair <laughs> <laughs> any, any good repairs lately. I, I, uh, I haven't had anything break on me of late, but I'm, I've got my tools with me ready, ready to do repairs at any moment. But Kyle, I feel like you always have some, some sort of wacky repair going at any moment. I, I actually, I got a John Deere product. I have a 1965 John Deere bulldozer. Uh, and it is great fun. Uh, it is uh, just completely mechanical linkages and hydraulics, and there is uh, no hint of anything electronic whatsoever in it. One of the gauges on the dash stopped working, and it was because a mouse chewed through a uh, a little uh, you know hydraulic tube. Uh, so you just replace the tube, and the bulldozer is good to go. Is that just for fun? Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's mostly for fun. Where I'm, I'm, you, I'm, I'm building roads with it. It's just it's a fun yeah. toy. Uh, Clam Watson in the chat said it would be useful to bulldoze piles of red ringed Xbox 360s with it. Um, one of yeah. my, I think that was the first. Well, so let, but let's talk about that a second yeah. because uh, that's a major win that we just had. Uh, was um, I have been so the ever since you know Bunny Wong wrote the book Hacking the Xbox and he hacked the the original Xbox. We've wanted to enable uh, more repairs, and you know, like during the pandemic, the top repairs on iFixit have all been game consoles. It's been Xbox, PlayStation, the Nintendo Switch has been number one. Um, but the problem is, there's certain repairs that we can't do. So if you have an optical drive, uh, you know, your kid six crackers in the Blu-ray drive on your Xbox, uh, the thing is toast, and not just the, the optical drive is toast. The whole console is toast because the optical drive is cryptographically paired to the mainboard. Uh, and it's not just that we don't have the tool from the manufacturer to do it. It actually would be illegal to break that lock because it would be a circumvention of Section 1201 of the DMCA. It's a violation of this obscure copyright law that makes it illegal to break locks. 
Um, and so we've been applying to the Copyright Office for years to make this repair legal, basically for a decade, and they've consistently told us no. Well, we brought in the heavy hitters at public knowledge and had a lawyer uh, like specifically focus and build a really detailed case to the Copyright Office of why repairing optical drives on Xboxes was important. Um, and just a, uh, two weeks ago, <laughs> the Copyright Office came out and agreed with us and went ahead and they legalized that repair. So if any of you are out there and are a security researcher and can help us figure out how to break the lock uh, tying the optical drive and the main board to an Xbox or a PlayStation, then we could, we could enable um, those repairs at scale, which would keep a lot of consoles out of landfills. This is a really fun thing, though, and by fun, I mean really infuriating and um, repetitive in that you have to go to the uh, Librarian of Congress uh, every, every three, three years, years to go beg for DMCA exemptions that legalize um, circumventing specific copyright rules. And it's like, to be clear to anyone who isn't familiar with kind of how this works and what this means, like, it is now legal to hack an Xbox to um, to do what Kyle was just describing, to, to kind of figure out how to repair an optical drive, whereas before this exemption, it was not legal. And so... Um, you know, obviously we're all for ethical hacking and, um, security research and that sort of thing, but, you know, DMCA exemptions have allowed, like, lit, quite literally have legalized hacking of, uh, John Deere tractors of Xboxes and game consoles for the purposes of repair. And I think that that's just, when you, when you take a step back and think about it, like that's pretty remarkable and it's kind of crazy. That's always been like that's always been crazy to me. I don't know if it's crazy to you, Kyle. No, it's it's but. it's one of the most ridiculous. It is a law that makes certain kinds of math illegal. Uh, if you remember back in the '90s, there was a software tool called DCSS that would break the encryption on DVDs, and uh, it it was illegal to share the algorithm. And so people were like putting it on T-shirts because you can't copyright fashion. Someone made a, a song to the to the tune of "Happy Birthday" that was the actual text of this algorithm. Like this idea that certain kinds of math can be illegal uh, is, is uh, fundamentally anathema to me as a, as an engineer, and I think to anyone who cares about math and science. Right, and then but there's also the the flip side of that where they're saying, okay, you can hack this device in order to repair it because there's a dmca exemption but you have to figure out how to hack it like you still have to do the actual hacking which should like the the technical um, prevention measure or the drm like it just shouldn't exist in the first place um which i think is kind of the the broader message here and the thing that nathan's been saying and gay's been saying and you've been saying for a really long time it's like these this DRM is like, it's artificial in every way. It doesn't serve any purpose except to prevent repair by authorized, like, yeah, like with, with John Deere, it's like you hook a USB port, you, you hook a cable into the, the thing and you're able to circumvent the DRM if you have service advisor or if you have a specific piece of software. And as we've, you know, done stories about and videos about, it's like, Farmers have figured out how to break that DRM, and that's legal, but they shouldn't have to do that. Actually, DRM is not the final step that is totally blocked. Um, Even though it's legal under um, the exemptions granted by the Copyright Office for farmers to theoretically hack 
and research and repair their equipment. The final step um, in any of these repairs is that parts activation that we were talking about, the VIN burning, which Mm -hmm. requires not just the farmer, but the dealer to communicate with John Deere headquarters and get a whole new set of firmware downloaded unique to that, that configuration. So it's a, it's a, it's a permanent, it, it, you can't get around it. You can't hack your way into getting a whole new fresh set of firmware downloaded for your serial number, uh, at least right now. And that's, that's where um, Deere has a really serious problem that, that Apple does not have because apparently Apple can do this remotely and Deere can't. Yeah. yeah I There's mean, a- sorry, I was just going to say, um, and then, uh, then now I forgot what I was going to say. Well, I have a, I have a question for you. Uh, it's come up twice. We're, we're talking about John Deere. This question has come up twice in chat. Um, and it may be beyond the purview, uh, of what we're doing here, but, uh, a couple people have asked, why isn't there somebody that's jumping into the tractor market, Tesla style, um, and dis- disrupting it? Why is there no competition for agricultural machines that are easier to repair and that kind of thing? Is something like that even possible, or does John Deere just kind of have a, a de facto monopoly at the moment? I mean, this oh, is why the anti. Yeah. This is and why someone the anti- asked me last week to start my own tractor company. So I, I'll, I'll pass <laughs> off to Nathan, but. Uh, yeah, you know, it would be fun, uh, but Nathan's got good reasons why it's hard. No, this is why antitrust policy is so important, right? Because John Deere makes six times the margin, six times the profit on repair of the existing equipment than the sale of new equipment. So if you wanted to compete with John Deere and you wanted to do, like have ethical access to repair materials, you're upfront costs would be would seem to be non-competitive. So there, there's one environment in which uh, the prices are competitive, and that's the point of sale. And, that, and, and then it's, if you actually aren't subsidizing that low point of sale with other kinds of rent-seeking on the owners of your products, it, it, it just makes it impossible. So unless the rules for how to treat your customers are not set by the FTC or, or by states, then it's always going to reward the ones that have the sneakiest, most extractive and abusive terms um, that they're just going to be able to outcompete everybody. Um, I, I, I think that hopefully somebody does come and disrupt it, some of these industries, but th- they're going to need some support from lawmakers uh, because they're not competing on an even footing. Right. I think an important thing to to say also is like, I don't think the space is super open for one of John Deere's competitors to go and say like, oh, we're going to be the repairable tractor. And the reason I say that is because so much, there's so much, maybe collusion is not the right word. That's a very strong word, but it's like John Deere isn't really, to my to my knowledge, they're not showing up to state legislatures and arguing against this anymore they're doing it through their dealer networks and they're doing it through lobbying groups um, like the equipment dealer uh, association i believe it's called um and the equipment dealer association doesn't represent just john deere it represents case new holland It it represents like every this entire industry and so the entire industry has decided what their priorities are and one of their one of the priorities of every manufacturer is we don't want a right to repair law passed. And that's the case, I mean, it was the case for a really long time in 
electronics where Kyle, our favorite organization, I can't remember the name of, um, was doing tons of lobbying against right to repair uh, legislation. And it wasn't, it wasn't Apple doing it. It was, you know, this broader. Oh, CompTIA. Yeah. CompTIA, um, which I can't remember what it stands for right now, but it, it nominally like represented some repair groups um, or repair professionals, but also represented Apple and Samsung and LG and all these other groups. And so they decide as an industry that we don't want to repair. And so I don't know, I guess someone could break with the industry, but the way that the the lobbying works, it's almost like it, it benefits all of them to have repair monopolies sort of across the, the entire industry. To which I would say that as far as we've been able to ascertain within the large agricultural tractor market, there's only three players left and all three of them have the same policies. So you can't at this time vote with your wallet and buy a different brand and get away from a bad policy. Um, So the options aren't there. The market is no longer a free market. Plus the fact that these are very big, expensive capital equipment expenditures. And a farmer may have invested in hundreds of pieces of equipment, and they're not planning to, to change them out anytime soon. So it's it's not a market that's really, it's not at all a consumer market where people are buying replacement products every two or three years. Um, the amount of time and the capex it would take to build a factory to produce these products is probably not practical um, unless there was a major manufacturer that decided to do it like say a Mahindra um, because you know they have they have a role uh, but they're an Indian corporation they don't make the big stuff they only make the little stuff etc so um, I think it I think your your observation that this is collusion is actually pretty well substantiated I think the Association of equipment manufacturers has created the way, for these um, manufacturers to share policy. We've got another question here or a comment more from Chad, but I thought it'd be interesting for everyone to respond to it. Um, I fear John Deere will push farmers into lease agreements. And by doing that, keep control of any repairs in-house at the local dealerships. Most people own their Apple cell phones, as Kyle mentioned earlier. The trend is for more lease in agriculture. Any thoughts? Yeah, this is right up my alley. I'm a former leasing company. Um, there's two kinds of leases. One is like when you um, lease a car from Ford Motor Credit and you give it back to Ford at the end of three years and you pay the upcharge for the mileage. In that case, Ford Motor Credit owns the equipment. And that lease agreement, they can tell you what you can and cannot do. But the other kind of lease agreement, which is very common for this um, long-term equipment, is essentially a bank loan. And in that case, um, leasing law says that you own the equipment and it's an installment purchase. So depending on what the farmer got got connived into by John Deere Finance, they may or may not have the same rights that they would if they had leased it a different way. And John Deere Finance is a massive organization. And um, farmers are probably stuck with some policies that they don't that they won't want. Another question that comes from chat uh, across across the ocean: Do EU farmers have who have non-U.S. equipment also face the same right to repair problems that U.S. farmers do? 
we're all U.S. experts, so this may be this may be a question that we can't answer. Actually, I was under the impression that some of this stuff they have to share in other countries, and they're just, so uh, they're helping the French farmers out, but uh, but uh, but but ignoring the uh, request from the Nebraskans. I don't. I I I would like the truth on that. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody, maybe we're crowdsourcing this here. Maybe somebody actually knows for a fact that you can get some of the dealership tools outside of the dealership in in Europe uh, for John Deere. That would be good to know. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, I feel like the right to repair landscape in Europe is a whole other different conversation, right? The EU is being a little bit more aggressive, mandating you know that every that Apple use the same charger that everyone else does these kinds of things uh but I, I'm not super familiar with what's going on over there future episode future episode for um sure. I think let's uh let's let's wrap this thing up huh yeah absolutely Shall I think we? it's it's a busy day for for our right to repair heroes here who are uh probably taking some other media and that sort of thing. So thank you so much, Kyle and Gay and Nathan uh, for talking to us today, but also for doing this fight and for talking to us always. Um, oh, wow. We're out. Well, no, that's no, just the <laughs> outro music. You can keep talking over the music. I was, I was just going to say, is there any last, last thoughts, anything we missed or should we, should we bounce? I'm just saying, keep going. Continue to hold Apple accountable to you know, the spirit of what they're talking about. If, if they're talking about making repair accessible, let's make sure they make repair accessible for all. Let's make sure they're not locking out recyclers from harvesting parts and using them to repair products. Nathan, any final words? Oh, what he said. Yeah. A hundred percent. We got to keep going. We want protections in law. Yeah, that that's my message is that if they're doing the right thing, great, but we got to make sure that everybody does the right thing. Yeah, I think a pinky promise and a and a you know blog post is not strong enough <laughs> when the alternative is is legislation and that is enforceable. Yeah, we'll see how this all plays out, right? Um, if you guys like the stream, please uh, please follow us and subscribe. You get notified when we go live. We will be back next week. Um, if you missed it, the VOD will be available shortly, and this will be available as a podcast. Uh, probably tomorrow morning, uh, wherever fine pods are casted, etc. Uh, Kyle, Jason, Nathan, Gay, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through all of this. Here's great to be thank here. You. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.